This is Echozoi Radio, episode 177 for January 2023, with Kofi Edoboan on Genesis 1 through 11. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 177 for January 2023. Kofi Edubowen is back to talk about Genesis 1 through 11. Kofi's pastor of Redeemer Bible Fellowship in Medford, Oregon. He's been preaching through Genesis, and he's here to talk about the creation, the fall, the flood, and a little about Babel. For those who like video, this episode is available at Rumble, YouTube, and the Echozoe Locals page. It's also embedded on the episode page, which is at echozoe.com slash 177, where you'll also find show notes for the episode. For social media, you can find Echozoe on Twitter, Truth Social, Gab, Parler, Getter, and Telegram. You can find an up-to-date list of all these various websites at echozoe.com slash linktree. I'm most active on Twitter, but I check in periodically on all of them, and you can find episode announcements for uh, all of these websites. Finally, I want to remind everyone about the Christian Podcast Community. The Christian Podcast Community has a large and growing library of many, many excellent biblically faithful podcasts. You can find the entire list at christianpodcastcommunity.org. You can subscribe to the shows you want to hear directly or subscribe to the community feed and get all of these shows on one giant feed. And with that, here's my discussion with Kofi. Kofi, it's... Uh... Quite a pleasure to have you back. I I didn't count, but we're we're up to like maybe five or six episodes you've done with me. I thought five. Yeah, five? No, I was thinking about it. I think this is number five. Okay. Yeah. So and then uh, I left the topic up to you, and you you want to do Genesis? You've been preaching through Genesis. Yep. Um, started Genesis the beginning of this year. Um, did chapters one through eleven at the start of the year. And actually in chapters 12 through 25, Life of Abraham, but 1 through 11 is still very fresh in my mind. I'm actually mm-hmm. writing up some of that material for some future ideas I have. So very fresh in my mind at the moment. Cool. I've really enjoyed the way we did Colossians and Haggai. And I, I just really, especially Haggai, because it was not a book that I get into very often or certainly don't hear preached on very often. No, that's why I chose to preach it. <laughs> it was sheer curiosity. And I actually, I really enjoyed it. And I'm actually planning um, potentially, not next year, but the following year to do the other two. So Haggai is part of a three prophet set, really. The post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking to do Zechariah and Malachi um, in 2024, Lord willing. So okay. we'll see how that goes. Well, if you want another suggestion when you're done with those... I did kind of what you said with Haggai. I was going to do a dive into 
Ezra, something I wanted to do f- through ministry, oh. through Echo Zoe mm-hmm. Ministries, was to really talk about him. I, I'm not a preacher, but I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah. Of course, I started digging in and then got too busy to to really do much ministry-wise with it. But um, great books, though. And oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Um, definitely would would suggest those too if you're looking for a more obscure books that you don't hear people preach on very much might do might do actually yeah i'll find that way <laughs> <laughs> cool well um i'm gonna just kind of let you take it and then we'll i'll probably jump in with comments and questions here and there but more or less um how do you start off with genesis i mean we've got the creation and i mean what mm-hmm. well uh, before we get into all that i I think one thing that struck me as I began to preach the early chapters of Genesis was just how foundational those 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through mm-hmm. 11, how foundational they are to the rest of the story of redemption. Yeah. There are so many concepts and themes that you find there in seed form that if you don't start with those chapters and know those chapters well, and understand the doctrines that are rising out of those chapters. You really can't understand the rest of the Bible. And as I was working through my sort of prep to teach the series, it just became more and more apparent that if I ended up naming the series I did in Genesis 1 through 11, Foundations, for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I named it Foundations because these truly were foundational chapters, not just to the book of Genesis, but to the story of the Bible as a whole. And, you know, it convicted me on a number of areas. One, you know, something I think I said during the Haggai episode, that, you know, we don't know our Old Testaments as well as we should. And often the bits we know in the Old Testament, we kind of know what I like to call the storified versions. You know, we kind of have the big picture, kid's story that you can tell and they find exciting and interesting. But when you look at, these chapters in detail when you look at these books in the old testament in detail you begin to realize that there are consistent themes and consistent messages being given to us as god's people and it's really to our detriment that we don't spend more time in the old testament um, than we often do yeah well and i've always liked looking at genesis uh when you're talking about it uh, the bible as a whole looking at Genesis as one bookend, because then when you get to Revelation, you really see kind of a all of creation kind of coming back around to what mm-hmm. God had mm-hmm. intended all along. Kind of we when we start pre-fall especially, and then we get the consummation uh, at the end where we're all kind of brought back into that creation that is free of sin, I'm not mm-hmm. good at describing it, but just this bookend then uh-huh. yeah. concept. Absolutely. No, definitely. Um, it's Graham Goldsworthy, the Australian biblical theology writer who talks about this concept, like you just said, the bookends of the Bible. That, you know, the Bible has a shape and the shape is you have Genesis uh, 1 and 2, the world as it's um, designed by God to be. Mm-hmm. The fall happens in chapter 3. And from that point on, everything is god's plan to get us back and in some ways better than where genesis 1 and 2 is so like you said you look up especially the last two chapters of the bible genesis 21 and 22 revelation and the revelation thank you revelation 21 and 22 and you've got 
beautiful symmetry with the first two chapters. That's not by accident. Mm-hmm. It's God has restored and in some ways amplified and magnified his original purpose back in the garden. And so absolutely, that, that beautiful shape and symmetry to the Bible gets lost if you don't understand those early chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. So let's get into those two mm-hmm. then. Absolutely. So um, really the first major section in Genesis, easy way to remember Genesis 1 through 11 is to think of four key events. If you understand the four key events, you'll understand the book of Genesis, well, Genesis 1 through 11 really as a whole. So the four key events in Genesis 1 through 11 are creation, the so creation in chapters 1 and 2. You have the fall and its effects really from chapters 3 through 5. Mm-hmm. You have the flood and its effects from chapters 6 through to 10. And then you have the Tower of Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So that's really your sort of 30,000-foot outline, at least that I worked with when I was preaching through Genesis. You've got creation, the fall, the flood, and... Babel. Babel. And in each of those, you have a sort of cycle within those. So you have this initial work of God. You have a sort of decline narrative that happens that leads to a judgment and then it leads to a recreation Mm -hmm. or a beginning again so you look at genesis chapter one and right through to two three there's your initial that's creation as Mm -hmm. we know it the seven days of creation and just a couple of notes on that i came into that study holding to a six-day creation I came out of that study even more convinced of a six-day creation. Mm-hmm. Um, when you sit and you just look at the way that the text explains itself, the most natural reading is six days means six days. Um, and I say that with respect to my friends and brothers, and I do consider them friends and brothers who would take like an old earth view or more of a framework view, which I don't think is exclusive from a young earth view, but that's for another show, I imagine. But by and large, I think, the author of Genesis, who I take to be Moses, I think Genesis, I think Moses wants you, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to read these events as what actually happened in real time. They're not a metaphor. This is a, it has markers of poetry, if you want to say that. Yeah. But the poetry is describing real events. It's yeah. not, you know, this is not a poem that means something else. Right. Um, which is something I've noticed in recent years is becoming a really popular view almost a kind of either that or to say well the days don't really matter it's what happens during the days well the problem i found with that as i was going through genesis one um i actually preached genesis one through to two three in one sermon and one thing i found is as i read the various commentaries that took slightly different views at the end of the day none of them were dealing with some of the implications of that so later on in Exodus 20, God will establish the Sabbath principle. And he bases it on the fact that, well, I worked six days and rested on the seventh. So you work six days and rest on the seventh. If you say that, that that's just a poem or it's a metaphor, or it's not intended to be actual days, that analogy falls apart. Jesus assumes multiple times that creation happened the way that Genesis 1 says. He doesn't assume again it's a metaphor. It's trying to explain something else. 
That that to me is problematic. And so when you look at Genesis chapter one, from verse one through to two, three, it's presenting, I believe, a real narrative of what happened. Mm-hmm. At best, you can say that, okay, it's put to in a more poetic form, in the form of an epic, if you will. But that's what actually happened. God actually created these things in six days, days being marked off by the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first big observation from Genesis 1. That being said, I think another observation I saw was that in Genesis 1, you do have a structure to the six days of creation. So days one through three, God is creating the form of the universe, as it were. Okay. He's creating a structure of what the universe looks like. And then in days four, five, and six, he fills that structure with those who will occupy it. Mm -hmm. So that's where you see all the animals are created. The sea creatures are created. Day six, which I believe is the pinnacle, man is created. And so what you have there is God forms creation in days one through three, and then he fills it in days four, five, and six. And then after creation is done, day seven, which is interesting, we say day seven, but it's kind of open-ended because it doesn't tell us the same structure of and evening came and morning came, the seventh day. Yeah. Like we enter into the seventh day and God has finished from his works. Which again, I I think we had kids in, yeah, I think we had our kids with us that Sunday. And I said, you know, kids, it's not that God was tired. Because <laughs> like I said, oof, that, that creation, that, that just took it out of me. Um, no, he's pointing to something that this is what he desired that this is perfection that this is the world as it's he intended it to be and since since it's what he intended it to be there's nothing more for him to do he rested Mm -hmm. and so even in that passage uh there's so many great spiritual truths to learn um i think one thing we learn especially is the the fact that god creates the world by his word that he's not creating from something. Again, we, I affirm the classic doctrine of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, that all he does is he speaks. You see this pattern over and over again in the creation week. And God said, let there be. And then God saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. Like God speaks, it happens, he sees it's good, and he got, moves on in that sort of way. And so we are... It's really getting a center stage look at the power of God as he creates with merely a word. And thinking back to that first audience, which I think is always important when we look at any passage of the Bible, when you look at that first audience who had grown up in Egypt, who have been steeped around the idolatry of Egypt, a reminder of the power of God, a reminder of the fact that this was not like the creation myths that they would probably would have been familiar with. Mm-hmm. You know, a creation that came from something or as some of them would have said, a drunken act of the gods or what have you. No, this is a God who was purposeful and he's powerful in his creation. And since he's purposeful and powerful in his creation, he's purposeful and powerful in his dealings with his people. And so even in those first couple of chapters of Genesis, you get a sense of how this book is designed by God to teach his people who he is and how he operates. Mm-hmm. That kind of leads you then into chapter two, which um, I, and when I preached it, I did two from verse four through to the end of the chapter, verse 25. 
which is really just the world as God has created it. Now that he has finished the work of creation, we now see, okay, how is man supposed to relate to God in this creation? And so man is given this unique role after there's a description of the garden and the area surrounding it. Man is given this role that the text says is to work and he's supposed to work the garden and to keep it, to guard it. Um, what I found to be fascinating as I studied this was that there's only one other realm in which this language of working and keeping is used that you see in Genesis. Okay. And it's, it's the priesthood. Oh. So you read in Exodus and God tells the priests that they are to work in the tabernacle and they are to guard the tabernacle. And that language is applied to the priesthood. And I think it's interesting, a number of writers in recent years, uh, most notably uh, Greg Beale, have talked about the fact that when you look at how Eden is described and how Eden functions, it's something of a garden sanctuary. That it's this place that has been designed not just to be a home for Adam and Eve, as important as that is, mm -hmm. but it's this place that's been designed ultimately to be a place where God is worshipped. It's not by accident that at the end, when we'll get to the fall, it mentions that God would come to the garden in the cool of the day and would, the text seems to have, uh, enjoy some sort of communion directly with Adam and later Eve when she's created. And so what you're seeing in Genesis chapter 2 is God has created a world in which he is to be worshipped. That he alone is to be worshipped. He is the only God. And that unlike the nations that were surrounding the nation of Israel, who were polytheistic and worshipped many gods, and worshipped many gods basically according to the dictates of whatever they wanted to do, God himself is very specific about where he wants to be worshipped and how he wants to be worshipped. Mm -hmm. And he's created man for that purpose. So that was a fascinating insight from studying that section. And then, of course, you get to 18 through 25. And then you have really its discussion of marriage and the nature of marriage, which, of course, in our day and age, um, mm -hmm. we cannot hear too much teaching about. Because mm -hmm. if there's there are lots of things our culture are confused about, actually. But <laughs> top near top of the list is God's design for, I think I said in the sermon, uh, marriage and human sexuality. Mm -hmm. So you see that God creates a helper for um, Adam 218. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll create a helper suitable for him. Um, some people call that, you know, they say, oh, God created Adam a help me. That's actually not what the text says. Um the term help me comes from the King James Version, a helper meet for him. It's the idea of a helper who is suitable to him. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that the woman exists purely to meet her husband's needs. That's not quite the point. Right. Um, and so God creates this one who's going to be a companion for Adam because it's not good for Adam to be alone. That even though Adam names all of these creatures who come to him, yet the text says there was no one comparable to him. The reality is, I know our culture likes to say that, you know, my pets are like my kids. No, they're yeah. not. Um, the, the reality is, like, I mean, we used to own a cat and we loved our cat dearly. Um, like, pets are a great and wonderful thing. I'm not saying that. Please don't hear me as saying mm -hmm. that. But 
the reality is they're not made in the image of God like a human being is, which means that they can't relate to you in the same way as another image bearer can. And God recognizes this. And so he creates uh, Adam out of, you know, it creates Eve, excuse me, out of Adam's own rib. Um, I love the quote. Let's see if I can pull it up real quick. Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary has this really excellent quote about Eve and her, you know, the purpose for God creating her from a rib. Some might argue, where does he get that exegetically? Okay. Um, we can quibble about that. The thing I enjoy about it is it's just such a beautiful poetic quote about the importance of Eve. If I can just pull it up real quick on my computer. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Um, he says, this is one of his observations on the passage. He says that the woman was um, made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. Which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. The, the, this reality yeah, it is. That, I agree. Yo, Eve is... I've heard that before. Ultimate, I didn't yeah, know that that yeah. was ascribed to Matthew Henry. It's, it's from Matthew Henry. Okay. Yeah. Um, which, again, is a beautiful picture of what God is doing in creating Eve. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this, you know, basically first marriage that is being arranged by God that this is not designed to be a relationship of two people basically battling for supremacy. Now, I do believe, and we'll get to this in just a moment, uh, while we get to chapter three, I, I do believe that husbands are called to be the heads of their homes in that sense. But ultimately, this is not a fight for supremacy. That's not why Eve is created. That's not why Adam's even created. This is a relationship of companionship, a relationship of partnership. And something is lost when, whether it's Christian marriage or just marriage at large, is viewed primarily as a competition versus, okay, how can we together seek to glorify God in the world that he's created? I think when we look at marriage from that perspective, now we're looking at marriage from the way that God designed it to be, not so much what we often want it to be. Well, I think you start also to see uh, more of what, the model is when you get into the New Testament and we see that Jesus uses this this imagery of a marriage to describe his relationship to the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's you know, picked up Ephesians 5, mm-hmm. that where Paul says that this is a great mystery referring to marriage and says, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Now, ultimately, marriage is designed to point us to a greater and more glorious reality than just marriage. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately designed to point us to the fact that there is a union and communion that exists between the Redeemer and the redeemed, between Christ and his people. That even in Genesis chapter 2, we're seeing way ahead of Genesis chapter 2 into the future where Christ will redeem a people for himself. And he will, like, you know, that like the Matthew Henry quote says, that they are near to his heart. He protects them. He cares for them. They are intimately united to him. 
And so even in Genesis chapter 2, understanding what Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, we're being pointed to a greater reality than just earthly marriage. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get too far away from creation, I was curious as you were doing your, both your studying and then your preaching, but more so your studying, um, how much did you get into creation? And then what I'm getting at by that is um, where do like the, the angels and heavenly beings come in within this framework of creation? That's a good question. Um, I didn't tackle it in my sermon series per se, but I did look into it some, mm-hmm. just knowing that the question may come up. Yeah. And ultimately, I, I don't think the Bible gives us a concrete answer. Right. Well, that's why I bring it up because yeah. it's yeah. it's it's one of those kind of gray areas where it's and it's nice sometimes when you come across these gray areas to see what do other people think about them. Absolutely. Um, well, some people take the view they're created just prior to day one of creation. Okay. Um, I know others say that they were created at some point well before that. Okay. Um, ultimately, we don't know. What we do know is that they're clearly created beings. They're not eternal in the sense that they've always been like God has always been. Right. Um, but we do know that they absolutely precede the creation of men and women. And that by the time Genesis chapter 3 will roll around, which we'll get to in just a minute, um, the adversary is very keenly aware of who humanity is. Mm-hmm. And he's apparently had some time to observe humanity at this point. So no matter how that'll, long they've been around, they've been around for a minute. Yeah, that'll bring up a, another question. But um, I'm curious where do people get this? I mean, I think it's natural to assume angels were created before humanity before mm-hmm. the events of genesis one mm-hmm. but where do we find that in scripture that's a good point and that's where i ultimately didn't put it into my sermon because i couldn't give a mm-hmm. definite answer to that yeah there are passages that seem to infer that that for example angels are present at creation and they're glorifying god job alludes to this a couple of times like a couple mm-hmm. of other other texts in the prophet seem to allude to that. Um, but again, these are our best inferences. We can't mm-hmm. land with any sort of, yeah. you know, certainty the way we can the act of creation itself or the act of the creation of Eve, the nature of marriage, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So then that other question then is um, another place where the Bible's pretty quiet is the the time frame between creation and fall? Mm-hmm. Yes. And what's your I would take there? Like how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they before the fall? Because it kind of implies mm-hmm. it's like really fast. It's like maybe in the next week, week two, week one is creation, yeah. and week two is fall. I agree. Uh, I, as I look at it, it seems the way the text is written that these events happen fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Very well, very well may be true. But again, it's um, great. Yeah, it's great. We're not given time and date stamps like, and 30 days after creation, initial creation, or, you know, 28 days after Eve was created, we like, we don't get that. We have yeah. to, a lot of this, we have to kind of just say, okay, well, Moses has told us what we need to know 
in order to understand this passage as the spirit of god told him what he needed to know mm-hmm. um and we just have to kind of say again like you said gray area we're not a hundred percent certain how to tie up all the questions we may have mm-hmm. yeah i just bring up both of those because they're curiosities oh yeah definitely yeah but yeah i think we should be in chapter three i think yep. that's what we got to so chapter three well in chapter three you have the fall um i'm in the camp of a pastor from my home country uh jeffrey thomas who says the fall is probably the most unfortunate way to talk about that because it wasn't a fall it was a great heaping crash <laughs> um and i happen to agree with him on that much but theologically we call it the fall and you know in genesis chapter three we're introduced to this character the serpent um again the text says the serpent was more beguiling than all the but it's very clear very early on that okay something is behind this serpent um again i'm not a big speculator when i read the text um obviously i'm not too smart for all of that but You know, some of the questions people have is, you know, was the snake evil from the beginning? Was the snake possessed by the evil one? I lean towards the latter. Um, I think the just the way the language is used in, later on in Genesis 3 seems to suggest that, okay, there's something more than just a snake who's kind of wily. Mm-hmm. Um, that something supernatural has taken place somewhere between Genesis 2 and 3 regardless of where you land with that the text is very clear that the serpent is in the garden and the serpent has a mission and he goes about his mission very quickly in genesis 3 1 through 6 he presents these three temptations um basically the temptation of this thing is really pretty it looks good um it's desirable it's tasty and it's interesting there's a third one that's thrown in there i think sometimes people miss um, in fact, if I open up Genesis 3 real quick, um, Genesis 3. You must have fact, a bunch I'm, of monitors over there. Uh, just two massive ones, and they're slightly higher than my chair. <laughs> <laughs> so you're looking up high. Yeah, I'm looking up. Yeah. Um, Genesis 3. I might be able to pull this up on screen. Let me check real quick. Uh, yeah, you should be able oh. to. There we go. I think that works. Cool. Can you see that? All right. I can. Okay. So Genesis 3 says... Anybody who's watching the video version, sorry to interrupt you there, but um, he's got it up right up on screen. Yeah. So it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Um, Oh, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible for anyone who's wondering what I'm reading. Um. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, verse six is where we get the summary statement of how this temptation works. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who where was the text of your, who was with her, and he ate it. Three temptations really are summarized in that one verse in verse six. 
It's good for food. It's delightful to look at. Desirable for obtaining wisdom. It's fascinating. Do you know the only other time those three temptations are put together? Well, two times, actually. I don't lie. Two times those temptations are put together. I, yeah, I want to say temptations of Christ, but... Yep, correct. Christ's temptations are all three of those. Mm-hmm. He's appealed to on the basis of... Remember the first temptation? Here are these stones. Well, turn the stones into bread. Turn the stones into bread. You then have a temptation that... For, before we hit there, there's one other text that comes up in. First John chapter 2. Okay. So in First John chapter 2, if I can pull that up real quick... Here we go. So first John 2, if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard these verses before. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, and what does John say is in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is of the world. Those are the same three things you see in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. You see them in the temptation of Christ as well. So let's look at Christ's temptation. First temptation. Turns stones into bread. Appeals directly to his flesh. Mm -hmm. The second temptation, he's taken up onto the temple, throw yourself off. That's a temptation to pride. Why? What does Satan say in that temptation? Throw yourself off. God will send his angels. They will carry you. Remember where he is? He's at the pinnacle of the temple. It's not the middle of the night, as far as we can tell. The temptation is, do this and everybody will see it. All eyes on you. The third temptation, he shows him, the text is very explicit in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, all of these can be yours if you'll bow down and worship me. And all three times Jesus rejects those temptations. John picks up on those and says, that's what makes the world what it is. I think John is looking at both the temptation of Jesus and if you go back to Genesis 3, 6, what happened in the garden because it's the same thing mm-hmm. eve is appealed to on the basis of the desires of the flesh hunger is a legitimate desire but it's a desire of the flesh it's appealed to she's appealed to on the basis of the desire of her eyes not only is it tasty it's good you to think. look at yeah and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom I can make a strong case that that has to do more with pride than anything else. And so when you look at, and a number of commentators, older and newer, all pick up on this same reality, that really what you see with Eve, with Jesus, and with John in First John chapter 2 is that the same three temptations, if you look at all the temptations human beings will encounter, all temptations can be grouped under one of these three categories. That the devices I was reading Thomas Brooks's uh, book Precious Remedies end of last uh, end of this year excuse me, and again he notes this that all the temptations human beings endure all come under one of these three categories. That our adversary hasn't changed his mo; he's just found more ways under these categories yeah. to entice people. And whereas Eve fails in the temptation. Jesus succeeds in that temptation. And so even in the garden, you're seeing, okay, the failure of one, and of course, Adam fails his temptation too, and that's where the parallels picked up. 
Adam fails in the garden. Jesus succeeds not in the garden, but in the wilderness. And so there's a parallel that's being built in there. Mm -hmm. That here we are at the fall of man and there was a failure in temptation. And here at the beginning, ultimately, of the redemptive work of Christ, there's a success. You're meant to read the gospel account and say, wait a minute, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Mm -hmm. This is going to go a little bit better, yeah. to put it mildly, than yeah. it did back in the garden. Yeah. And I'd like to go back, uh, as long as you still have it up on the screen there, you've got, at the top, you've got uh, verse 5. Mm -hmm. um, so much of humanity and, and, and our fallen state, so much of sin seems to go back to that one verse, that one promise there. Mm -hmm. it says you will be like god yeah. now he might give different uh follow-ups what does it mean to be like god but here that means knowing good and evil but mm -hmm. overall it's just so much of human the human fallen state comes back to wanting to be like god oh absolutely and you know one of the tragic things is in all the ways that is important, there is a sense in which being made in the image of God, that was already the case for Eve. It's already mm -hmm. the case for humanity. In all the ways that are important for us, again, we are not gods in the sense of we are 100% like, no, but we are created in his image. And in yeah. all the ways that matter, humanity is basically being offered. I think this is a point I made in my uh, sermon series. Humanity is being offered that which it already has and can only have fully in relationship to God. Un unfortunately, for whatever reason, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. Uh, I tried to take Eve off the hook a little bit in my <laughs> sermon because like everyone makes out like, you know, why didn't Eve know better? It's all Eve's fault. I'm like, hold on. First of all, the text says, verse six, that Adam was there. Yeah. So even if you say, well, because you've probably heard it, you know, Eve misquoted God. Well, maybe. Um, yes, she does add the language of you must not touch it. Touch it. Um, or God, which, true, God did not say that. That is true. But kind of, you can see from Eve's perspective, makes a little sense. If you don't touch it, you're not going to go eating it, are you? Mm -hmm. So let's not be too hard on Eve at that point. I always have some questions for Adam, because if Adam is there, why isn't Adam who heard the command directly? As far as we can tell, Eve would have heard that secondhand. Mm -hmm. So why isn't Adam who did hear it firsthand, not jumping in and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I was there when God, there's a failure on Adam's part here where yeah. he is not, as it were, leading his wife the way he's supposed to lead his wife and saying, okay, Eve, no. We've heard a correct word from God. We've heard a direct word from God. And what you're hearing right now contradicts that. And so I, I joked to our congregation. I was like, I'm trying to give Eve a little credit here. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. I mean, not, not much. Um, but well, arguably, she was yeah. deceived into eating the fruit, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. Adam was not. Agreed. He knew, when, Agreed. He knew then what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so the fall happens um, in these moments. And between verse six and verse seven, I noted that it's almost instantaneous that they feel the effects of this. Mm -hmm. 
to six is verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. Like an awareness that they didn't have prior to this moment has set in. And now that it's set in, like, oh, this something's not right. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's ultimately what's, yeah, go ahead. Well, that begs more questions there. This they knew they were naked begs some more questions. And again, gray areas. We don't know what exactly that means, especially not mm-hmm. in the English. Um, no. The and lay lay people who don't have the the original languages to dig into, which is me. But um, what does that mean? They knew they were naked. Were they always naked, and now now they knew it, or? Were they clothed in some way, and now they're not? Um, well, Genesis two twenty four and twenty five makes us to understand that the the man and his wife were naked and they were unashamed. Mm-hmm. So there was a sense in which they were always naked, but there was no. I think the the connotation in Genesis two helps us with understanding this, where there's no sense of shame attached to that. Sure, there's no sense of you know. Think about it. if something if you have a wardrobe malfunction. And something that we should not see is now seen. Our natural instinct is to try and cover that up as much as we can. Right. That instinct. Well, the seemed, reason why I bring that yeah. up is you get into, especially in, the, like, we get into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, we start to see that God is clothed in radiance. And we mm-hmm. see things like the at the transfiguration where mm-hmm. not just that Jesus is transfigured, but those mm-hmm. around him begin to radiate, those who see it began mm-hmm. to have a radiance mm-hmm. and that Moses, when he went up on the hill on the mountain mm-hmm. and met with God, that he radiated, mm-hmm. he, he glowed. I mean, there was mm-hmm. this radiance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and that's why I wonder like, were they always naked or were they clothed in something? Were they clothed in the radiance of God? Oh. And now all of a sudden, because they sinned, they don't have that radiance anymore and they don't have God walking through the garden anymore for them to come face to face with him and get this radiance that he's had. Oh. I hadn't thought about that, but that's actually a very <laughs> good point. That's actually a very, very good point. Yeah, that's definitely something I should think about for, you know, when I write up, <laughs> finish writing up this material <laughs> to dig into a little more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually makes some sense. I think it does. I think it does. I'm actually mind blown by that. Okay. <laughs> Not bad. I'll, I'll take that one. With okay. I'll I'll be sure to reference where I got it. From. <laughs> well, I can't say that that's my own, but I can't. It, it's been kind of in the background for a long time, so um, no, the, I, I, think, I can't I think exactly cite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes some sense, though. Yeah. Sure. Um. So where was I? Um. So yeah, this is almost instantaneous awareness that something has changed. And the first thing they try to do is to make a covering for themselves, mm-hmm. which again, I don't think is by accident. Uh, I think when you look in the Bible, the language of covering is always tied to salvation and redemption in some way. Yeah. And in fact, the Bible explicitly talks about righteousness being you know, given to us as clothing, as there's that language is very heavy throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see here is really well, you see that the, in the in the in the marriage discussion again, going back mm-hmm. to the marriage discussion where you're not only a, 
you were called to come to the wedding, but you're not mm-hmm. allowed to bring your own clothes. You're supposed to wear the exactly. clothes that are provided to you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And now what's happening is they're making a covering for themselves. Mm-hmm. They're trying to find a way to cover the shame, to cover the change that has happened to them. But rather than going to God, which they can't obviously in this moment, they're now trying to do it themselves, which itself is... Uh, an interesting insight into how we deal with sin as human beings. Ultimately, there are two ways to deal with it, and we'll see how God deals with it in a few moments. But the way that we often try to deal with it is, I'm going to patch together, if I can use that language, patch together a solution to the problem of sin as I see it, rather than submitting to God's given solution for the problem of sin, which is that he provides the covering for our sin that we so desperately need. Yeah. And so uh, Genesis 3 kind of unfolds and, you know, you have this narrative of God coming in and, you know, saying, you know, saying to Adam, where are you? Knowing full well where Adam was, that question wasn't for God's benefit. <laughs> right. It was for Adam's benefit. Yeah. Um, like what's happened to you? Um, it's, as I think, I think I said in my sermon that it was not a spatial question. It was a spiritual question. Mm-hmm. God's not asking, where is your location? He's asking, what's happened? How have we gotten here? And again, Adam says, verse 10, and he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Again, God knew what had happened already. But again, these are not questions for God's benefit. They're for Adam's benefit. Then he asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then in come the excuses and the blame shifting that we are. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, with. that one. That, sorry, I got yeah. to change my screen here. I got full screen here. Um, that last one, verse 12, the chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> the absolute chutzpah. <laughs> I, did, I, that's, I, I think that's the word I actually used in my seven manuscript. I was like, the, the woman say, you gave me. Yeah, like, God, I was, I was fine. I was minding my business. You gave me like, <laughs> yeah. Like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. We laugh at that. But I, also, I put it to our congregation when I preach this. Like, how many times have we done that with God? Where we've not taken responsibility for what we've done. We've sought to say, well, this is God's fault. <laughs> God, you didn't give me this. You didn't give mm-hmm. me a perfect environment. You didn't, and I think one of the things that Genesis 1 through 3 teaches us is that even a perfect environment, even in a perfect environment, excuse me, things can go wrong. Yeah. That it's not a perfect environment or a perfect set of circumstances, or God gave Adam a perfectly wonderful gift in Eve. But the minute things got tough, he was willing to shift the blame and say, no, listen, it's your fault. You gave her to me. And God's like, I love how God doesn't even dignify it with a response. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not even, I'm not, my mom would say, I'm not even playing with you today. Like, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's humorous when we look at it, but it's tragic as well. Like the relationship. Well, he doesn't God, dignify yeah. it with a response, but if you look at 13, what does he do? So the Lord asked the woman, yeah. what have you done? Yeah. You know, everyone has to, I think it's interesting that God basically holds everyone accountable in this situation. Mm-hmm. nobody can sit there and say well it wasn't me no god says okay you say as a woman all right well what have you done 
Well, Eve says, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate, which is true as far as it goes. But Eve made the decision in the end. Yeah, she was deceived, but she made that ultimate decision. And then verse 14 is where it gets interesting. God speaks to the serpent, verse 14. He doesn't even ask the serpent. He just says, No, no, no. He, yeah. At this point, we all know who's really at fault here. Yeah. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And there is some speculation, okay, at this point, is it that there was just a natural craftiness to the serpent, which made him more in league with the evil one than less? Hence the physical punishment he receives. Is this a physical punishment? Is this more? Um, I think I explored that in the sermon in more detail. Um, but verse 15 is where even in this very dark scene, there's a glimmer of hope. Um, theologians refer to this as the proto-evangelium, the first mm-hmm. gospel because this is the first proclamation of the fact that God is going to do something to fix this. So verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And we're made to understand through the New Testament that that's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, Mm -hmm. that he is the seed who will ultimately defeat the serpent. Um, Again, he will strike your head um, and you will strike his heel. Again, it's, by the way, it doesn't say that the woman is the one who's going to do this. It's the seed. I say Mm -hmm. this because some of our Catholic friends will pick up on this and say, well, this is why Mary is important. Mm, Pronouns are important too. Um, Please note it says you will strike his heel, not her heel. Um, So, the first promise of the gospel is given even in the context of this very dark scene, which tells us that God has always had a plan of redemption in place. Nothing is catching God off guard here. Nothing's here like, Oh, what in the world? Like God's like, okay, heaven panic stations. Like everything is going wrong right now. All hands. like, No, this is not what's happening here. Uh, If anything, God has been keenly aware of what's happening from the beginning. He knows what's happening. He's already decreed what will happen. He's already decreed a plan of redemption. We should have given Adam and Eve hope even in that moment. Of course, there were curses levied upon the man and the woman, uh, verses 16 and 17. Well, really through to the end of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Genesis 3 ends with them being expelled from the garden that no longer can there be this unmediated communion with god that they had once experienced in the garden they are now removed as it were from this temple sanctuary this garden sanctuary that's created for fellowship and communion with god now they're expelled but not first verse 21 is interesting it says the lord god made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them oh his is like we've already talked about a covering that they tried to make mm-hmm. back up in verse 8 and now we have this language of clothing that god himself makes and i pointed out to our folks when i preached this don't miss those two words there from skins the 
God does this on the back of someone dying. And animals clearly die. That's how you get the skin of an animal. Yeah. Uh, no, I've not been hunting before, but I'm reliably <laughs> told by people who've been hunting that you can't get skin if you've not actually killed an animal. Well, an animal's clearly been killed in this moment. And through the death of this animal, a covering, a clothing has been provided for Adam and Eve. Again, I don't think that's by accident. I think it's pointing us once again to the fact that God is going to do something whereby he will provide the covering for man's sin. That it's not left to man to try and string together fig leaves, which aren't the most effective way mm -hmm. to cover someone. No, God is going to provide an effective covering for man's sin. Like even in Genesis 3, we're being signposted to that greater and more glorious reality. Well, then this is also reflected later on, similarly uh, with Abraham as he's taking Isaac up on the Mount Moriah. Mm -hmm. And Isaac asks, where is the lamb? We're going up to sacrifice a lamb. Where is the lamb? And of course, Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which was kind of a double entendre, you know, and mm -hmm. that he will provide it. He will himself provide it. He will also provide himself as the lamb. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so Genesis 3, you have the fall, but we're not quite done with the fall yet. Because in mm -hmm. chapter 4, we've now started to deal with the fallout from that. No, here's the effects of what happens. Um, when I did, when I preached chapter four, I preached it in one sermon and I basically had it in two halves. You have the tale of two sons and then the tale of two bloodlines. So you have the tale of two sons in verses one through 16, which basically deals with the story we all know of Cain and Abel. Um, again, I won't go into that story into a ton of detail, except to note that, um, first of all, the theme of sacrifice comes up again and the fact that God will only accept sacrifice as the means of relationship with him because these two brothers present their sacrifice. The text is very explicit in saying that Cain produces um, basically the works of his hands. Like he brings his own works, if you will. I want to be careful not to push that too far. But mm -hmm. he basically produces his own works and places them on the altar. Abel gives the best of the flock. And the text says, verse 4, that Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Again, one could argue they're both the works of their hands. I mean, Abel is a rearer of sheep. Like, you've still got to work. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference here? Well, I think we're being signposted once again to the fact that God works on the basis of sacrifice that god works on the basis of blood that is shed in relationship with him well cain isn't much too happy about that as we all know and um the story itself kind of unfolds as it does with ultimately the murder of abel um, it's just interesting to note hebrews chapter 11 uh, picks up on this language of the blood of Abel and says that the blood of Jesus speaks better. It's not Hebrews chapter, I think it's chapter 12. That picks up the language and says that, you know, we have not come to a, you know, we've not come to Sinai, we've come, we've come to Christ 
and to the new covenant i'm sum- summarizing and then he says into a covenant which into the blood of jesus which speaks better things than the blood of abel no that's picking up on this scene here in genesis 4 where god says to cain when he confronts cain like what have you done again there's that line, that question again we've heard that well what have you done it says your brother's blood cries to me from the ground and i don't think it's that the blood of his brother literally had a voice i think god is speaking in picturesque language there to say that the demand of what you've done is so loud it's so deafening that i can't ignore it and then the authors of the hebrews will pick up on that theme and says yes though the blood of abel spoke essentially for justice for abel because he was innocent he didn't do anything but the blood of Christ speaks better for his people. Because all Abel's blood, metaphorically speaking, could do was speak justice, speak condemnation, because that's what Cain deserved. But the blood of Jesus for his people doesn't speak condemnation. It speaks mercy. It speaks grace. It speaks forgiveness. And so even in this scene where, once again, one of the things I noticed as I started going through Genesis is the gospel and seeds of the gospel are just scattered throughout this passage. Yeah. And you don't have to manipulate the text. You don't have to allegorize it and do weird things to it. They're just there. Just by understanding the canonical context, understanding the Bible as a whole, these themes are just there waiting to encourage God's people, which is what they would have done as they read these verses. So that's 4, 1 through 16. That then leads you up to uh, basically 4, 17 to the end, which is really the story of two bloodlines. You've got really one that's more known for its achievements. But right at the end, there's kind of a punchline that's given to us. So verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So you've got this one line that kind of dominates the end of this chapter. But then there's another line that you're supposed to pay attention to. And the implication of the text, both in the English and the Hebrew, is that it's from this line that people begin to call upon the name of the Lord that the promise essentially that God made in Genesis chapter three now starts to be fulfilled as a people start to draw near to the Lord. Even in this early stage of human history, we're not told how long it's been mm-hmm. since the fall. It, obviously it's old enough for them to be grown up boys who kind of are independent enough. But even in this early stage of human history, men are starting to call upon the name of the Lord. So again, it's not all doom and gloom, even though, again, this is another very dark chapter. It doesn't end that way. There's that glimmer of hope that God is indeed at work. And then you get to chapter five, um, which is a genealogy. Mm -hmm. And I think when I preach this to our folks, I ask, how many of you skip, be honest with me, show of hands, how many of you skip the genealogies when you read your Bible? About half the room went up. Um, I was like, okay, first of all, repent. Um, (laughs) It's in in your Bible for a reason. So don't skip it. And two, actually, there are lessons we can learn from here. 
Um, well, I like this stuff because I'm a young yeah. Earth creationist, and I kind of follow yeah. that. I mean, not not necessarily because of Answers in Genesis, but the the same way they do. I mean, you can kind of get a rough idea of how old the Earth is by following mm-hmm. these genealogies and and then taking them from there logically to what uh, history we know subsequently. Mm-hmm. No, I, I would agree so, that. I would agree that. And I actually did touch on that, I think, um, in this is that you, you get a sense of, okay, the age of things, because you can roughly work out, okay, oh, okay, if this person is this long and they're around this long and they have kids who are around this, you can get a rough number for how yeah. long things have been at this point. Um, I think another reality you see in Genesis 5 is just the reality of life and death. This is now yeah. the way the world works. Yeah. So you see it. Um, just, you, my eyes is hit verse 3. Yeah, Adam, just going there too. 130. Yeah. 130, he has a son, lives 800 years after he has a son, has other kids, lasted so long, died. That's yeah. just the theme. Over that this is just the world as it is now. The fallen world, people are born in God's providence, they have families, and then they die. Which is which sounds kind of um fatalistic, like that's it? Really? Well, you get then to this character called Enoch. And Enoch's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> so you get to Enoch verse 23. So Enoch's life, Enoch's life lasted 365 years. There's almost a, both in the, our English translations do a good job of reflecting this. Uh-huh. In the original language, there is kind of a monotony to this. Just It kind of just sounds like, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. There's a monotony to it. And then the monotony breaks when you get to Enoch. So 524, Enoch, Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to he born, he was born, he had kids, he died. He something different happens with Enoch. Yeah. And of course, all everyone has their theory about what happened to Enoch. Um I personally think he's in heaven. Well, I think he's in heaven in a glorified body now. Um He was raptured. If you want to use that language. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was there. The text says it. Like he was there, and then he wasn't. Yeah, because God took him. <laughs> well, there's a, as far as I know, there's only two people in the Bible who never tasted death, mm-hmm. and he was the first. Yeah, um, you're possibly alluding to Elijah as the second person. Uh, yeah, um, which is not a yet, worth. not yet. Yeah, and we're not told yet, that we're told that. Well, we're not told explicitly. Mm-hmm. We're we're told in in rather, um, I don't say it's it, it's it seems clear, but you got to it's strong inferences, oblique terms, oblique yes. terms. That's a good word. Yeah, oblique terms, because we the, the, the there are two witnesses at the end, mm-hmm. and the witnesses really look very much like Moses and Elijah, mm-hmm. and those yep. witnesses are killed. Mm-hmm. So this is true. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm a premillennialist in my view of revelation, which apologies to all my reform friends who listen to this <laughs> and are pulling their hair out right now. Um, but yeah. Well, I've aside from, thought, from yeah. Ryan Habana, my, one of my board members, uh, of all the people that I interview, uh, especially those who I have never met in person and shaken hands with, you're closest in eschatology to where I'm at. 
Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but we've talked about that before. But... We have talked about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, back to our text. There's the monotony breaks here. And it picks right back up after him. It's meant to point to you to something. The fact that, hold on, there's another way to live. Walking with God? That, yes, as people walk with God, the result, the end of the story is not the same as those who don't walk with God. Mm -hmm. Because again, you don't, there's no mention of death. No, it's not that we as God's people don't die. And then this is the point I made to our folks when I preached this passage. It's not that God, it's not that as human beings we don't die. But death is not the end of the story for us like it is for the rest of the people in this story. Well, this story, this genealogy. And so Genesis 5, I, tell, I end up telling our folks, it's not a throwaway chapter. Actually, if you read it closely and you pay enough attention, it's pointing us to some much greater truths. So we've hit creation, we've hit the fall. We now enter into the third big event in chapter six, which is the flood. Yeah. Um, now I want to know we're, sure. we're already past an hour, so Oof, I don't okay. think we'll make it to Genesis 11. We probably won't know. The flood but, is a relatively easy one to summarize. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll kind of close off with chapter eight. I, um, I also want to point out now... Um, I mean, it's kind of more apparent as we get into seven, but um, mm -hmm. Enoch, if you go back up, mm -hmm. um, Enoch um, said that up a little bit more. Before it says that Enoch's life lasted, uh, okay, uh, 22 there, after he had fathered Methuselah. Mm -hmm. 21 and 22. He was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. Oh, I remember correctly. Methuselah was, isn't he the one that, like, longest living person in the Bible? Yeah, but no, 969 years there. And, and then as we see in 7, that it was, like, the year he died that the flood happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we get a sense of, okay, Quite some time has passed between the beginning of where we've been to where we are now. Yeah. You know, which some people, skeptics, will say, ah, this doesn't make any sense. If you're saying that creation happened so early, how could it be that many people? Well, let's say Methuselah's pretty early. That's at least a thousand years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. Like, that actually makes a lot more sense when you stop and pay attention to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and, um, Procreation gonna happen quickly, I and mean, especially when you got yes. such long lifespans. Mm -hmm. You know, Methuselah probably didn't just have four or five kids; he probably had hundreds of kids. Yeah, yeah. he certainly had time for it. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely seems like that to yeah. be sure. Um, so as you come into chapter six, one of the sons is highlighted in verse five. Again, he doesn't. He's the only other person in this narrative who doesn't get the born, lived, and die treatment because he's yep. about to be the big focus of yeah. the next section. So you pick up in chapter six, uh, verses one through four, and everyone's favorite topic: the Nephilim. <laughs> um, I personally take the view that the Nephilim were the result of. Again, I don't take 
the so I kind of take a roundabout view from the view that angels literally came down. Okay, I think this is a little problematic, but I don't think it's too far off. I, I take the view that just as demons are able to possess human beings, um, that's what the angels did that they possessed human beings, and that the offspring they produced were these Nephilim. Okay, um. But Which not, makes sense of so then you would say not specifically the demons' offspring, but the the offspring of the people that the demons possessed. Yes. Well, I would say so. Here's how I would summarize it. I would say that the when you have this language here of the sons of God, mm-hmm. um, so the sons of God again. The only time we see this language used as a corporate thing in the Old Testament, Book of Job, it's a reference to the angels. Okay. So I think it's Job one six and Job two ten. Um, so we want to pay attention to that. I would agree that much. Now, I, I when I preached to our church, I said, look, this is me trying to make sense of this passage. I'm not landing anywhere with definitiveness for the simple fact. We don't know if there was a change in the nature of angels post this event. So I have to put my hand up and say, I don't know that. Yeah, well, that's a good I'm, point. There's a lot that yeah. we don't know about the world in this period of time. Exactly. So is it that angels had the ability to physically procreate they maybe i don't know the best argument i've heard against that is where jesus says like the angels you know they're like the angels in heaven they need the marry nor are given in marriage mm-hmm. um so okay that could mean that i don't necessarily think the author of genesis is trying to argue that point per se mm-hmm. uh, i think the bigger issue so again i like i said i've kind of landed where the sons of god these angels I would argue, possess human beings. And they the possessed human beings um, fornicate. do the natural thing. Fornicate, <laughs> yeah, do the natural thing. Yeah. And produce these children who are clearly the offspring of these demonized people. Okay. That's where I land with that. Mm-hmm. Even if you say it's directly angels, the result is really the issue. And the result is yeah. the same. Which is that there is this... Um, group called the nephilim who are said to be powerful men of old uh famous men some translations say men of renown mm-hmm. um, clearly there's something different about these verse five then kind of highlights the fact that okay what happens here with these is kind of i take the view it's kind of like the tipping point like humanity is clearly depraved like the fall has happened so we know this mm-hmm. but clearly there's something about this event which is such a tipping point where god says verse five uh where it says verse five that god looks at human wickedness is widespread every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time that the lord regretted that he made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved verse seven then the lord said i will wipe mankind whom i created off the face of the earth together with the animals creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Now, of course, the language of regret here is not like, oh, I made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. It's a human way of explaining that God has looked at what's happening with humanity. He's not pleased with it. Mm -hmm. And so he says, I'm basically going to wipe them. I think the CSB pictures this well. Like basically, like one would do with a tablet or with a writing implement, they're just going to just wipe it clean, start over. But verse 8, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. That even though human sin has so gotten to a point where everything is kind of a mess, there is still this hope. 
there is still this glimmer of divine blessing that hold on god is going to yes he's going to wipe out humanity but he still has a way of fulfilling his plan and so we get the instructions for building the ark in chapter six um again it's interesting this language of two you know we often you know, we sing the kick song the animals were on the uh, on the ark two by two you know kind of true some of them were two by two yeah some of them yes he's told to bring more than two yeah um but it's in verse 18 that i kind of stopped when i was preaching this and i highlighted this because he says verse 18 but i will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons your wife and your son's wives god says i'm not just going to save you no i'm going to establish a relationship with you so now we're getting a little more information about how God operates. That it's not just, okay, God does these single, singular saving acts, but he does so in the context of covenant, which I think, again, is interesting to know. And so finally, in chapter 7, they enter into the ark. Uh, we're told in verse 6 that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. And so he enters into the ark, Floodwaters basically flood the earth. I, by the way, like I'm sure you do, believe that this was a global flood. This was not a local flood. Mm -hmm. um, the language does not sound local. Um, well, that and the the rainbow that we get later would be yeah. meaningless if it was a local flood. My thoughts exactly. My thoughts exactly. And so basically have the narrative of them being in the ark for quite some time. And then you get to chapter 8. Begins chapter eight. God remembered Noah. Oh, well, first of all, God doesn't forget. So what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. um, simply put, God's purpose now. God's purpose for Noah now comes to the front of his actions. Think about where's human beings. When we remember something, typically it's one of two things: either we've completely forgotten about it, and someone reminds us. They're reminding us what they're doing. They are bringing it to the forefront of our mind. Remember this thing. Well, this is the kind of picture that's being used here. That God's purpose for Noah now comes to the forefront of his mind. So God remembers Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And so begins the process of the ark becoming, you know, the ark basically disembarking. Um, I noted when I taught this that really you have, again, the cycle that I mentioned, creation, a fall, and then an act of judgment, and then creation starts over. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got that here in the flood. So you had creation as it was, chapter 6, and, well, chapter 6, verse 5 points, okay, it's so reached a tipping point. God says, we're going to start over. That then leads to the act of decreation itself, which I believe the flood was essentially a decreation. Okay. Um, and now you have the beginnings of okay, a new creation. God is now starting over. He's begun to start establishing His promise again. And so you have the story with the two birds that go forth. God finally tells, verse fifteen, "Come out of the ark, you, your wives, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Uh, bring all the animals out." And Noah is acting kind of like a new no, a uh, new Adam in this moment. He's going to be the one. He and his three sons. Well, more his three sons. But through Noah, the new creation order is going to be established. Still with Tice, the old one, he's still a son of Adam. Mm -hmm. 
So there's still a direct line of continuity. But now we're starting over with Noah. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And that's when God establishes, really going into chapter 9, his covenant officially with Noah. Where he says, basically, I'm going to preserve the world. The way you know I'm going to preserve the world is that every time it rains, it's not going to flood, at least in that way, to cover the whole earth. And the way you know this is, as you mentioned, the rainbow that's in the sky. Yeah. You see the rainbow in the sky, you know I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood. And really, that's the end of you know the flood as an actual event, of course. You're not just dealing with the flood, you're dealing with these implications, which take you into chapters 9 and 10. 9, you kind of see Noah acting a little bit like Adam again, in a more negative sense this time. <laughs> and the curses that now Noah makes towards his son. Um, well, actually not his son even, technically he's his grandson. Um, Ham's the one who sins, but it's Canaan that he curses. And I'll say this just, I know we've got to wrap up, but that's important because it's setting up why Israel are going into the land and why they basically have to remove the Canaanites entirely. This yeah. was not a you know, capricious act on God's part mm -hmm. that from the beginning, God had made it clear that the Canaanites were going to be the subjects of his wrath. So as the nation of Israel were going to do this, they were doing this, not just because they need to move them out of the land so they can live in it, but because this was god bringing his judgment to bear mm -hmm. on these people so again worth not missing that um as you read genesis chapter 8 and so finally you have the content of the creation covenant in chap uh, end of chapter 8 chapter 9 you have the whole sordid incident with noah chapter 10 you've got a table of nations another table of nations which is super important tells us where everyone comes from mm -hmm. some key characters who come up here um nimrod all sorts of things, true and slightly untrue, as we said about Nimrod in the course of human history. Um, what we know is clearly not a good guy. We, we can surmise that very quickly. But you see all of these nations, Ham is mentioned kind of at the end because he's the one who's ultimately going to be judged. But then you have Shem, and obviously Shem is the one through whom the promises will be fulfilled. And then finally, you got the Tower of Babel, which is pretty straightforward. We all kind of understand what's going on there. Yeah. Yes. Um, one thing to know about Tower of Babel quickly: um, you have basically, obviously, the languages are now confused. Nations disperse. The reverse happens in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, mm. where there is now the ability for all people in all languages to understand the wondrous works of God, and now a people is being brought together for God's name. So a people are separated and dispersed in the Babel incident, and Pentecost is the beginning, really, of the New Testament church, where Babel is being reversed. Genesis 1 through 11. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, it was fun for me to study, fun for me to preach. There's just so much going on here, which is, you know, worth looking at and factoring through. And like I said... You really understand these first 11 chapters. You are on pretty good footing to understand the rest of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Well, maybe someday we'll have to do another one where we kind of talk about how that gets all kind of comes back around, like we said at the beginning, the, the other bookend. Mm -hmm. That'd be yeah, a fun discussion absolutely. someday. Yeah, definitely. So, cool. Well, we are uh, well within the, the second hour of a show, so... 
Um, I hate to push it out too much further, but um, I, 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 I don't have much to say. I really enjoyed that. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me on. Always a good time. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. Well, that wraps up episode 177. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. For show notes, visit echozoe.com slash 177. Please also check out the library full of the great shows available at the Christian Podcast Community. Then come join us on the Echo Zoe Ministries Locals page at echozoe.locals.com. You can support the ministry there as well as interact with the community. I look forward to seeing you there. Lord willing, we'll be back next month with the February episode of Echo Zoe Radio. Thank you.